0: Okay, so like Rebecca said, I'm Crystal Johnson, and I'm very excited to be here with you this evening. And before we dig into um, too much tonight, I just want to tell you a little bit about myself. So I joined Veritas through Salt Company when I was here for college, and I've been here ever since then. After college, I was um, lucky to get the job as a classroom teacher at Faith Academy and taught there for six years. And then this year was the director of curriculum at Faith Academy. I'm married to my husband, Trevor. We've been married for eight years, and we have three children in our home. Max is seven, Elizabeth is five, and Owen is three. And we have a plus one through foster care that's with us right now, and he's four. So there's plenty of energy and excitement and um, activity going on in the home, but the activity and the energy at home is always a little bit more um, when a placement is new to our home. It's a unique time of us getting to know them and them getting to know us. And it's an interesting transition period because we've already decided that we love them, but they're still wondering if they can trust us. So it's this time of getting to know each other, and it's also mixed with a whole bunch of new routines for them and new expectations, which can be hard because if they haven't learned to trust us yet, they haven't decided to listen to us yet. So there's the, some of the energy and activity that happens there. Um, but we get the honor of watching them build trust with us, and um, we, get to, we get to watch them know that we are for their good and that we are committed to caring for them. But let me tell you, that in-between transition time, it's really interesting and it's really hard. And I wish that the children came with a book that we could read of everything we needed to know about their story up to this point and the experiences that they've had. And we get small glimpses from the workers or from the child themselves or from their behaviors that we can make guesses about, but their relationship with their caregiver before us affects a lot of the ways that they receive care and love from us. It affects the way that they approach food It affects the way that they trust that my hands are safe or not safe. And I often find myself saying things like, now you are safe. Now there is food. Now we will care for you. Because the way that they've experienced relationships in the past is often the way that they assume our relationship will be. But slowly through faithful love, we get to show them that this isn't the case. And by God's great mercy, He gets to make their hearts able to trust and receive love. And doesn't that sound like the same assumptions we put on God? Don't we walk into this covenant relationship with Christ with baggage from our other relationships? Don't we assume we know how to protect ourselves and take care of ourselves in light of others' failings? And as we look at this Mosaic covenant tonight, we'll see the Israelites do this. We'll see them assume that they know God based on how they've experienced hurt in the past versus letting God's true character define their trust in him. Having four littles at home also means that story time is a big part of our time together at home. And I'm so glad that my kids love books because I love to enjoy them with them. There's nothing like curling up to them at night and enjoying um, sharing the joy of reading a story together. But don't think that story time always looks as magical as it sounds. There's usually at least one person crying or somebody can't see because the bed's getting pretty full or it wasn't the book they were hoping for. But when it is all as it should be, a story has the ability to captivate a reader as we walk with the characters through various adventures. So here we were this week opening up the pages of Exodus and the rest of the Torah as we entered the story of Moses and the Israelites. And what a gift it is to be able to open up our Bibles and read the stories of ones who have gone before us in this life, and we get to read their story and their adventure, and in doing so, we get to learn more about the God that we are in covenant with today. And from week one of this study until now, we've learned more about covenants than we probably ever thought there was to know, but this week I got to learn even more, and I had a really great time listening to a Bible Project podcast where they pulled out some old um, Near Eastern Covenant treaties, and I was pleasantly surprised at how interesting and funny that this was, and these treaties all followed a similar format they would start with laying out an overview of the two parties' relationship. So there was always one king that was more powerful than the other party, and it would give you a little rundown of their relationship as they were entering into this agreement. Then it would lay out the conditions in the terms of the covenant, how the powerful king would provide refuge and protection for the others while they served him in various ways. And then after laying out the expectations, it listed the blessings and the curses of the covenant, meaning if both of them were to honor and uphold the covenant, then there was a list of blessings that they could expect to experience in their relationship with one another. But oh boy, if they failed to uphold the covenant, the curses or the consequences were laid out in full detail. So the plan for tonight is for us to look at the components of what this would have been in a covenant treaty per se with God and then look at the three applications that that has for us. Okay, so first the covenant would lay out an overview of the relationship with the covenant maker and the one that they were entering into covenant with. So you would think that if you were going to enter into a covenant with someone and you had to give a recap of your relationship together up to this point, you would summarize your relationship as full of faith and trust and evidence of being able to count on each other time and time again. So if the Israelites were to describe their relationship with God up to this point, they would be able to say that God is the God of their fathers and recall all of the faithfulness their families had received in past generations. They would also be able to describe firsthand the way that they saw God care for them time and time again in their own life. They would explain that they were slaves in Egypt under harsh oppression, and they would explain how God responded to their cries. We read that this week in Exodus chapter two. It said, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. His response is thorough and detailed. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. Then they were face to face with death. Pharaoh's chariots in the rear and the roaring Red Sea in the front, and God delivered them. Then they were wandering without food and water, and God provided for them. So God has shown himself to be a remarkable covenant partner. They should be very interested in entering a covenant with God as the king of the world, the creator of the earth, the source of life itself. He holds a character that doesn't change, and he has a heart that is jealous for his people. That's the start of a really great retelling of the relationship they share. But if we were then to look at who God is pursuing in this covenantal relationship, it gets dreary pretty quickly. They just came through the wilderness where God had tested them. Now, what comes to mind when you think of tests? Some of us might have had some pretty uncomfortable feelings about tests that we've endured in school and different places. So when it says that God tested them, we might think that the tests were hard to pass or maybe they were set up for them to fail from the beginning, or that it was a rude idea in the first place. We might be wondering why the tests, But here's one thing that was not a reason for why God tested them. God didn't test them to see if they were worthy of rescue. He rescued them first. And then to an already saved people, he's going to ask them to trust him. So God tested them in the wilderness In order to show his loyalty and to give them an opportunity to build trust. So the question is, when they are faced with difficulty and death, what are they going to do? Are they going to listen to God and trust God, or will they doubt and take matters into their own hands? Well, the Israelites trusted God, and they left Egypt when he said to. They marveled at how God saved them through the parting of the Red Sea. But then there's this element of how they're singing, changed to grumbling, and then progressed to quarreling, and they're asking, is God among us or not, they wondered. And when faced with what looks like death, they doubt God and his promises, which often meant that they didn't listen to God. Moses himself shared the same doubt when God approached him as a partner. We have God laying out this plan for Moses, and there was such a difference. Moses wants to talk about I, and God directs him to talking about I. And with every doubt that Moses says, well, I, God responds with, well, I. And we can see that there's a big indication that everything to come, everything about this relationship, this covenant, was gonna be based on who God is, and not who we are but Moses alternates back and forth between doubting himself and doubting God why did you do this evil evil to this people are you enough why did you ever send me am I enough and ladies I can surely relate to that don't we do this in our own relationships we wonder are they really going to be all that they said that they would be am I safe to count on them can I really depend on them or we have the same thoughts about ourselves. Am I gonna be enough? Am I gonna be everything that they need me to be? And we see Moses toggle back and forth between doubting God and doubting himself. And you know how God responds to him? With promises, with many promises. He says, I have, I am, and I will. He covers the past, the present, and the future. In Exodus 6, Verse 5, he says, I have remembered my covenant. I am the Lord, and I will deliver you and redeem you. God has been faithful. He will be faithful. And again, he takes the focus off of Moses and directs him to look back upon himself. So Moses struggled with doubt. The Israelites struggled with doubt, too. How many times did they get mad at Moses and say, you should have just left us in Egypt? And it's easy for us to think that they were just being dramatic and they should have just remembered all of the mighty works that they saw with their own eyes. But we have to give them some understanding here. There were multiple times that they were facing what seemed to be death. And maybe that's a theme here, that when they are in the face of what seems to be death, they have to trust God that listening to him and following him will lead to life. But instead, we often find that in those exact moments, that's when our doubt is bigger than our faith. Now, we might not face death literally the way the Israelites did, but in our life, when do we find ourselves in such a position? Is it the death of a marriage? Is it infertility? Is it a broken relationship? Do we let our doubt draw us away from God? instead of leaning into him and trusting that continuing to listen to him and follow him leads to true life. Okay, so remember the covenant treaty would begin with a recap of the relationship relationship thus far. And if anybody else was entering into a relationship that was described this way, the advice should be run, don't walk down the aisle. Yet here God goes pouring his heart out to the people. So here we have the scene of Moses and the Israelites arriving at Mount Sinai where God is going to initiate the covenant with his people. The Israelites would be here for one year. The rest of Exodus, Leviticus, and half of Numbers covers one calendar year that they are parked at Mount Sinai. So I imagine myself leading my children through a journey, let's say a car ride. We just did a nine-hour trip to Oklahoma this weekend, and I'm exhausted And then they're all sore and tired and hungry and grumpy and I'm nearing my limits as well. And we finally pull over at a gas station and it's time for a talking to, right? The way you spoke and behaved in the backseat, that's not okay and on and on. But here we have the Israelites rolling in. And again, God doesn't focus on the ways that they are inadequate and are not acting like the bride he is looking for, but instead he reminds them of who he is. They arrive at Mount Sinai, in chapter 19, verse 4, he says, You saw what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He didn't say I brought you out of circumstances or I brought you to a land, but he brought them to himself. So after the lowdown of the relationship, the treaty would get ready to enter into the conditions. Here we have God say in verse 5, Now therefore, if you would indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be, and listen to this list of what he's offering, my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So Moses goes and tells the people this, that God has initiated the covenant, and the people say, yes, we will. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's like the proposal happened, the bride responded, yes, and now it's time to get ready for the ceremony. Now, this part got a little bit confusing because Moses goes up and down the mountain like seven or eight times, and I was always trying to figure out who is where and when what's going on, but we'll work on this together. So Moses goes back up the mountain, and he tells God, and God says, okay, I'm going to come in a thick cloud, and they will hear me, and they will believe me. The directions were to get ready, they needed to wash their garments, and they needed to make a boundary around the mountain where no one would touch or go near. But then on the third day, they would hear the loud trumpet, and the Lord would come down on Mount Sinai. God calls Moses up to the top of the mountain and says, go down and tell them they can't come on Mount Sinai. So Moses goes back and he warns the people. It's like children, you have to remind them, quite consistently otherwise they forget and things get crazy really quickly. Then God spoke the Ten Commandments. There was more thunder, more lightning, more trumpet and smoke again and the people are scared and they scoot back while Moses draws near. God continues to speak to Moses in the cloud and he gives more laws and promises the conquest of Canaan. Then in Exodus chapter 24, he tells Moses to come up with Aaron and his sons and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar, but Moses alone shall come near to the Lord. So Moses tells the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and again they responded, yes, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So reading from chapter 24, Moses writes down all the words of the Lord. He builds an altar at the foot of the mountain in 12 pillars He offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of it he threw on the altar. He takes the book of the covenant and reads it to them, and they say, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Then Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. At this point, my seven-year-old Max came over to me on the couch and asked if he could join me. I said, yeah, that's fine. Grab a piece of paper and a pen. We'll read it. We'll jot down notes about it. And the first thing he wrote down, I reread it to him. He had to write down, they threw blood on the people. And he kind of looked at me like, what are you doing over here? (laughs) So he obviously had a lot of questions. So I had a quick catch him up of like, on the playground, you would say a pinky promise. Like, you really, really mean it but this was a a blood oath. It was a way to say, I mean it so much that in Jeremiah 34, it says, if I don't, may this be done to me if I do not keep my oath. His eyes were really big and we continued to read on. (laughs) So Moses goes up with Aaron and his sons and the priests and they sat below the cloud and they looked up. It was like glass and they saw Elohim. They saw God. They beheld him, they ate and they drank. Then God calls Moses up to get the tablets of stone. And the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered the mountain for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses. In verse 17, it describes it. It says, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mount in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered into that and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now that's a common number of waiting in scripture. There's other 40 day examples. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus was was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And here the people are waiting for Moses 40 days and 40 nights to come back down. This highlights the fact that thank goodness we have Moses, a mediator, someone who was able to meet God on behalf of the people. We see that the covenant continues when there is a righteous, courageous mediator who will enter into what looks like death for covenant-promised life. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Jesus will be the better Moses. So Moses is there with God. Let's hop back to the people of God. Now, this covenant is fresh. They have just been told the expectations. The first commandment was, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself to a carved image. And what do they do? They say to Aaron, make us gods. And Aaron just does it. Like I kept rereading, looking for some hesitation from Aaron, but he just, he got started gathering the gold. And Aaron was supposed to be in charge. It sounds like Eden language all over again. Then the people ate, they drank, and they played. It was like they were having their own covenant ceremony. Yikes. God tells Moses to go. He says, my anger will consume them. And Moses responds and says, remember your covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and the Lord relented. So this really gave me pause. I was wondering, does God change his mind? Are the people entering a covenant with someone that when they're cool and calm and everything is going well, that's one side of them, But once you've disappointed him or let him down, then the real truth comes out. Is Moses the hero? Without him, God would have destroyed them. I was thinking, is this like me as a mom when I'm fully fed and well-rested and under low stress? I can do pretty good. But if I'm hungry, low on sleep, overstimulated or stressed or any combination, yikes, watch out. Is Moses like my husband saying, hey, honey, You need to take out. You're kind of the problem here. Let me deal with it. You're going to regret what you say or do. You need to go calm down. Is Moses helping God not mess up? Can God change his mind? No. But does he respond to our repentance? Yes. It wasn't that God needed to be talked down from his big feelings because later he would have regretted his choices made out of anger. He can't change his mind. That would go against his character and imply that he was wrong in his first thought. He doesn't change his mind, but he does allow his people to repent, and then therefore he is ready and excited and willing to respond with forgiveness. The conditions were stated, the expectations were set, and they have already failed. The consequence should be death. Max was still with me studying at this point, and I said, yikes, they broke the covenant. What should happen? Death, he responded. I said, so what do you think is going to happen? And he runs upstairs to go get his action Bible, and he starts flipping through to this page in the story, and as he's flipping, I said, can God change his mind and not give him the consequence? Wouldn't that kind of be like A parent giving an empty threat to their child, and we know that would just raise disobedient children that learn to disregard your word. If you don't say, if you don't do what you said you would, he has to be true to his word. Yet Max says, no, these are his people. And he flips to the page and he said, look, look, mom. And he points to it in the Bible and it says, the Lord forgives his people. The conditions were stated, the expectations were set. They have already failed The consequence should be death, but he relents. He gives them a chance to repent. Moses says in chapter 32, verse 26, who is on the Lord's side, come to me. And they do, some come and some don't. And then God gives them the directions that they are to go kill the others. All of them messed up. They weren't forgiven because they were the good ones on the side. Like when the teacher leaves the classroom and the whole class goes crazy, but there's two that are like, I'm not going to do that. That wasn't the case. They, They were forgiven because they repented. They chose to be under the Lord's blessing. They returned to the Lord their God. What a stark difference to the ones that never returned. They chose to reject the covenant blessings. They therefore chose death. So God tells Moses to come up and get two new tablets. He's so kind. I picture this like you're being called into the principal, principal's office and you better have a good explanation for your choices. And I would imagine there's another big talking to coming. But Moses gets there. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, God describes himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Don't we kind of expect that the worst of someone will come out when we've disappointed them or when we're not enough for them or when we've created stress for them? But look at how the Lord responds. Moses gets there and again, he describes himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, an abounding and steadfast love and faithfulness. So, what does that mean for us? Seeing how He responds to us in our greatest time of need, we have to remember that we are loved that way from the Father. That is His response to us. And could we do that to others when they let us down? Because of the forgiveness and the gentleness that we are given in our time of need, could we offer that same sort of loving kindness? To be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? Is that how your co-workers, your roommate, your husband, or your children would describe you? Who do you need to offer that same loving kindness to? Not because they deserve it in that moment, but because that is how God responds to us. So we did the review of the relationship the conditions, and now it's time to hear the blessings and the curses. The if we do follow the conditions and the if we don't. So Leviticus chapter 26 is filled with the repetition of, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you rains, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you will not listen to me, and do all of these commandments, then I will do this to you. And the list goes on and on and it's yikes. And honestly, when I got here, I was feeling the tension of, wait, I liked it a lot better when it was him initiating and I'm feeling really uncomfortable with the fact that this if then starts with me. It seems like it's dependent on my performance and my obedience, is it? Does the covenant depend on me? Well, here's the ending. It started with, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you reins and on and on and on. But if you will not listen to me and do all these commandments, then I will do all of this to you. But praise God, it didn't end here. But if you confess your iniquities, then I will remember my covenant. It's less that it's about our performance and more about our choice. We can choose to listen to God and live under his blessings, the source of life, or we can disregard his ways and therefore forfeit the blessings that come from being connected with the source of life. Disregarding God is signing ourselves up for being apart from life, thrust into chaos and destruction. The absence of his blessing is him letting us get what our choices deserve. The covenant was never worked. It was always a gift, and it could be received or rejected. Throughout Deuteronomy, Moses repeats and repeats and repeats, do not forget. In Deuteronomy 5, he repeats the commandments for the new generation. And in Deuteronomy 8, he gives the reminder with a warning. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish if you forget, you will perish. They were told that ignoring this would lead to death, but they didn't trust. We doubt the blessings, but we also doubt the curse, the seriousness of our sins. Now Israel, what does God require of you? Deuteronomy 10 to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. In chapter 28, there's a list of blessings for obedience and a list of curses for disobedience. And one time in chapter 29, it even says, and don't think I will be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Chapter 30 says, when you return and repent, he will restore, have mercy, gather you, circumcise you, and prosper you. In verse 11, God says, this command I give you today is not too hard for you. And in my Bible, I wrote, what? Sure seems like it is. But in verse 15, he gives a beautiful summary. He says, I have set before you life, and good death and evil then it gets really dreary he says Moses you're gonna die and he gives Moses this information that they telling Moses how bad it's gonna get for the Israelites so why make a covenant with people that from the very beginning we could tell yikes I don't think this is gonna be a good fit And then to be told that they are going to fail after we just read all of those blessings and curses, what are we supposed to do with this? We have to remember that the curses do not get the last say. Moses predicts that Israel won't be able to fulfill the covenant, but God won't stop being generous. The covenant curse won't get the last word. The curse would indeed come but it won't get the last word. The curse would come, but Jesus would take on that curse for us so that we could be restored in our covenant relationship with God. This wasn't God just saying, never mind to the conditions and therefore the curses that are due. That wouldn't be true to his word. Jesus came, he fulfilled the law perfectly, and the only one who didn't deserve the covenant curse was the very one to take on this curse. So do we realize who we are in a relationship with? Do we realize how unfit we are to be loved by God, yet he initiates a covenant with us, and he gives us all we need to be able to fulfill the covenant so that the curses don't get the final say? He does. Therefore, we get to be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Do we love him like this is true? Or are we so used to being in relationship with people that let us down or expect too much of us that we have to hold them at an arm's distance? We have relationships with people with our arms up, expecting that at some point they are going to fail us or we're going to fail them, and then at least this way it won't hurt as bad. But God has proved himself again and again to be worthy of our trust. We need to trust him. Regardless of our circumstances, he deserves our trust. The Israelites faced what looked like death. They freaked out. They assumed the promises were no longer true, and they took matters into their own hands time and time again. How are you doing that? What are you facing that looks so hard or resembles death? What circumstance has you so overwhelmed that you're doubting God's promises could be true? Are you willing to trust that listening to him and following him will lead to life, that we can't access life apart from him? He is the source of life, and he deserves all of our trust. Sometimes we love him and we trust him in reflection of how our other relationships with people have gone. If people have hurt us and let us down and been unfaithful to us, we put that on God and we think we need that same arm up. It reminds me of a song, it's called How To Be Yours by Chris Renzima, and I remember hearing this song for many years and I never understood it until I met my daughter. Try to not choke up, the lyrics are, you say that you love me, don't say that you love me, because I don't know how to be yours. You say that you want me, don't say that you want me, because I don't know how to be yours. I still act like an orphan, I guess, and my hard heart breaks to confess that even while you hold me as I cry on the floor, I still don't know how to be yours. I mentioned at the beginning that we have three children and our story is unique that we became a family through adoption, through foster care. And I've seen my children live this out. And because of their experience with people that were supposed to care for them, but they didn't, They learned to love with their arms up. They had to learn to be loved. So this song speaks to that. I don't know how to be yours. And now that we've been a family, they've learned to count on us. Yes, we fail them. I'm not saying that, but they've learned to trust. We will feed you when you are hungry. We will hold you when you get hurt. We will listen to you when we speak. And by receiving faithful love, they have let their arms down and entered into a full relationship with us. Now, if you contrast that with our new friend I was describing at the beginning, he's still living like he's the only one providing for himself. He doesn't trust that food will come, that our hands are safe, that our love is for him. He sees things as a threat that the rest of us don't. And it made me wonder this week, watching that play out in my home. Which one are we in our covenant relationship with God? We learn to trust others based on experiencing their faithfulness. And my kids have experienced our faithfulness enough to know that when they see food, they can wait because they know I'm going to give it to them. And when they see a toy that they really, really want, they're more able to wait a turn because they know their turn will come but you know what one of the hardest words for my new little friend is? Wait, because he is operating from a sense of I'm the only one caring for myself and therefore I have to make sure that my needs are met. He hasn't experienced faithfulness, therefore he doesn't trust and that makes waiting the hardest thing. So when did we see that in the Israelite story? That when faced with what looked like death, hardship, something that we don't understand And would therefore require faith they no longer trust or when they're asked to wait they no longer listen but guess what regardless of what we've experienced from other humans we can't put that on him with him we are loved with a never-ending love we are provided for faithfully we have all of our needs met in him with god we have experienced faithfulness Therefore, we trust him, we listen to him. So, does our listening reflect our trust? And does our trust reflect the faithfulness that we have received from him? Do we think we know how he's gonna love us because we know how unfaithful we are to love him? Do we think we are the ones responsible for providing for ourselves and take matters into our own hands? Or are we willing to seriously trace God's faithfulness through all generations and see that he has proven time and time again that he is worthy of our trust? We need to put our arms down and fully enter into this covenantal relationship with him. He never disappoints us. He never tires of loving us. He is a faithful, faithful father. Do we respond with listening and love? Two very frequent words in Deuteronomy were listen and love. Do we let the Father love us, truly love us? Do we accept the covenant gift? If so, are we responding by listening and loving him? Jesus fulfilled the law when we couldn't. Does that mean we're free to do whatever we please? No, the whole point was to learn to trust God to trust him more than we trust ourselves. So do we trust him enough to listen and obey, to surrender what we think it looks like to pursue life and know that life, abundant life, is found in relationship with God himself. Hopefully this Mosaic Covenant can help us have a bigger view of who God is and how gracious it is for him to enter into a covenant with us. With that bigger view of God, are we accepting the covenant and therefore fully entering into God's love for us? And after we have put our arms down and trust him to love us the way he does, do we respond by loving him and listening to him? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the honest and serious way that you showed us this week that we do not measure up to the conditions of this covenant. Father, you are the perfect covenant partner and it is our honor and our joy to be in a relationship with you knowing that we have nothing to bring to the table. Father, help us to see you for who you really are, not thinking that your love will change because of us, or that we know that eventually these promises will run out because with everybody else they do. But Father, help us to see you for who you really are, for who your word has shown you to be, the faithfulness you have shown through every generation. Father, this week, will you touch each of these ladies' heart in in showing them and revealing to them how big that love is. Father, And would you help us to respond with faithfulness to you, to accept the covenant relationship with you, to fully love you, and therefore to listen to you because we trust you so much. We love you so much, God. Amen.